Amen. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This evening we will be looking in Judges chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, and we will read all the way into Judges chapter 11, verse 28. Hear now God's holy word. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the, sons of a, you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel on, becoming, or on coming up from Egypt took away my land. From the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. And Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went throughout the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, "'Please let us pass through your land to our country.'" But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord God of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from people or from before his people Israel 
And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this text and pray as we would recount what you have done in the past, might you continue it even now, speaking for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Salvation, uh, it's surprising, isn't it? There's a, there's a sense of a logic that you might be overwhelmed, joyful, excited, yes, even surprised that you are a recipient of salvation. But perhaps we could consider that question in slightly different. Salvation is surprising. Aren't you ever surprised who else God saves? Perhaps you have considered what the day or days of glory might be, the people you may or may not meet. And you might be thinking in your mind, what a surprise to see him or her. They're probably thinking the same of you, but it's surprising, isn't it? And I think the reason why we're often asking or perhaps surprised at others coming to faith is we rarely give attention to how bad sin actually is, how bad things really are. And so when we see something in which we go, that doesn't look right, that is bad, how can they be redeemed? We don't have categories for that other than to be overwhelmed and say, I'm astonished, I'm I'm surprised that he or she would be saved. I asked that question, I put that before you because where we are in Judges, it's a little bit ironic. We are at the halfway point of the book And what I hope has been clear and will remain clear is that this is not a book, this is not some some Ferris wheel in which we keep reading the same pattern and saying, well, they do this, then that, then this, then that, and here we are again. It's not a Ferris wheel in which it just stays on one level. What we're reading, if you're following closely in this book, is yes, there is a pattern, but do you see the pattern isn't so much in its This is what happened. It's the direction of it. It continues to go further and further down. You might say some of the same themes show up, but I think if we were honest, we'd have to admit these themes show up with very different conditions around the people of God. They are, in fact, losing all sense of who they are as the people 
of God. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, Mr. Ed Gleason preached for us from Judges chapter 10, and we were confronted with a verse that is very similar, and it shows up often in this book, and that is the people of Israel, verse 6, again, did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. It's a, it's a phrase that continues to come over and over and over. And we've been trained to hear it. And, and what we hear is, yes, the people have sinned and, and now we're ready. We know what's going to happen. They recognize that they've done something wrong. They're going to cry out to the Lord. And then what's going to happen? Well, he'll raise up a deliverer. But I think what you're looking at in Judges chapter 10 is this picture that shows, let me show you the core of the human heart. Let me really show you what it looks like if you and I actually looked in the mirror because this is not some surfacey crying out to the Lord to say, I messed up. What you're finding out in Judges chapter 10 is you're finding yourself closer and closer to the core, to the center of what mankind is in fact really like. What you read in Judges chapter 10 is you see the effects of idolatry. When people, Israel, when you and I decide to worship foreign and false gods, you find out what does it do to a person? What takes place? Well, the pattern of this book says they forfeit grace from God they worship a foreign God. And in fact, what takes place following that is it's that foreign enemy that begins to oppress them. They find a foreign God. They begin to worship some other God. And it's that people who begin to oppress Israel. What are you finding out about idolatry? Idolatry, well, it's enslaving. And not only is idolatry enslaving, Enslavement leaves, leads excuse me, to idolatry. Have you not found it interesting that these people, Israel, they worship a foreign God and then they become oppressed by him? And you would think immediately, as soon as their enemy begins to oppress them, they would go, I don't want anything to do with that God. What good is that? Look how terrible my life is. But what happens to Israel they worship that God all the more. You don't ever read in Judges, well, it only took a day for Israel to figure it out. We're, where we are, we're talking about a country who's been oppressed for 18 years. Nearly what many might call a generation. And so these people, Israel, they cry out to God, and you and I perhaps are expecting that pattern that we have heard so often. They cry out, and God raises up a deliverer. That's what happened in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. Othniel. It's what happened in chapter 3, verse 15. Ehud. It's what happened in chapter 4, 3 and 7, 3 through 7. That's Deborah. Chapter 6, 7 through 14. That's, that's Gideon. Over and over and over, the people have said, we've done it wrong, we've messed up, and God raises up a deliverer, we're, we're sorry. And yet, Judges chapter 10 says something so different, doesn't it? That's not what happens. The people of God cry out, and what do they receive back? 
God says no. God says no. What does he say? Go call your other gods. What is God saying there? I think he's saying, you, you know, Israel, you, yes, you're my people, but you're, you're just treating me like I'm one of those other gods. If you could just push the right button, if you could just say or do the right things, then you can get the result that you're looking for. I'm not one of those gods. Go call one of them. See if they will help. And what is God doing? He's saying, There's a vast difference between a recognition of sin and repenting of sin. And Israel has been very good at recognizing they've done wrong. And yet they over and over and over fail to repent. And it's not until later that they acknowledge and say, we have sinned against you. Do what is right in your eyes, Lord. Yet please deliver us. Now, that's not our text tonight, and so you might be saying, why are you talking so much about it? That's the background. That's the context. When you find out about Jephthah, this is what he is being raised up in. Here is the current cultural climate. It is crucial to you and to me to understand his role because it's this consistent pattern that Israel has been forgetting their history and failing to teach their children the mighty word and works of God. And so over and over again, you see them doing the same thing. And that's why we can say history matters. Paul says something about it, but you are probably more familiar perhaps in in school. And what's that phrase that would be casually used in school? Well, if you don't know your history, well, what? You're doomed to repeat it. And Judges is expressing that quite biblically and clearly, isn't it? When you fail to understand your history, you will, in fact, repeat it. And Paul would tell you, if you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were a citizen of heaven. Brother and sister, you need to know your history that you do not fail to repeat what has taken place. We need to know not our national history, although there is a place for it. We need to understand redemptive history. What has God been doing? And so tonight I want to look at our text in three points. History confused, history confronted, and history corrected. Look with me in the first few verses, beginning in 17 and 18. We'll concentrate our time in verses one through three. But history is, their history is confused. You get this background of Jephthah. Without it, you wouldn't know anything about him. You wouldn't know much about him at all. And so what are we getting? Well, the Ammonites, they're, they're preparing to attack. They're gonna attack Israel in the And the people of Israel, they've already told you, we are without a leader. We don't have anybody to lead us. We don't have a a commander. We don't have a, a judge. And so you might say, do we need this information? And I'm saying, yes, it's vital. Because what you're about to read about Jephthah tells you quite significantly where Israel really is and what they have confused And so when you read in verse one, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. He's a Gileadite. 
Yes, if you've been following along, that is, that is both a person and a place. It happens regularly in the Old Testament. You find people have names similar to their geography. But Gilead, it was an extension. Their ancestry is from the tribe of Manasseh. And so what are we learning? Jephthah, his father Gilead, well, they're, he's a part of Israel. It's connected to Manasseh. But then what you learn about his parents is extremely important, isn't it? That's what the author draws your attention to in verse one. He tells you he's a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. His father is Gilead, but that's not the main issue. I mean, the main issue is his mother. Who is your mom, Jephthah? She's a prostitute. It's meant to surprise you, no doubt, but I also think it's meant to clarify something. What should you and I understand? What would these people have understood when they heard that language? Something that's true of Jephthah is he's not a true Israelite. He is an illegitimate son. He is, in fact, not a part of the people of God. He has no legal rights in Israel He will have no actual inheritance. He is a outcast. It means he's not part of the people of God. Yes, his dad might have been, but his mother was not. He's a half-breed, you might say. And you can remember the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. What does Moses say there? No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Jephthah is not a covenant child. What we remember from this morning, how Jesus was raised under Mary and Joseph, hearing and making it their custom to come to the temple, this is not Jephthah's childhood. He's not growing up hearing about the covenant promise for him. He's not growing up in some Christian home, you might say. Now, none of this, you recognize, don't you? This is his own fault. This is something he was born into. He made no decision, but he was born into it. And so you read in verse one, this text, it says, when he was a mighty warrior, and you can imagine if Jephthah got to see a, an early edition of the copy, he would hope that there would be a period there. Just stop right there. But it says, but. Now don't mistake what's happening. They do want you to know something about mighty warrior. Think mighty men. Think First Chronicles 11, David's mighty men. It's not just an adjective trying to describe him. It's, it's something of a title to talk about what kind of warrior he really is. There is something militarily advantageous about Jephthah, but that's not the issue. It's not about his military abilities. It has a whole lot more to do with who his parents are. The contrast is what is showing us confusion because he's the son of a prostitute. And according to their law, he is in fact illegitimate. And so you keep reading. Verse two, what do, what do we find out? Well, Gilead did have a wife and they had children. They grew up. And what do we learn in verse two? They drove Jephthah out. They say to him, 
You're not getting any more. Whatever food, whatever, whatever clothing, whatever shelter you've had, it, it's too much. You're not getting any more. There's no inheritance. Leave. You're not one of us. And, and you recognize they're not just saying, get out of my house. This is not a get out of my house. This is not just a get out of my neighborhood. This is a get out of our country, get out of our people, our entire community, our city. You cannot be here. You don't belong. You have no place here. And so Jephthah flees from his brothers and he lives in Tob and we learn of this worthless army mercenaries, guerrilla soldiers that he's a part of. And no doubt you can read and, and see he's the leader. They're most likely, as many scholars would suggest, they're fighting against Syrians, perhaps other Gentile towns. You never get an account of him fighting against Israel. Very interesting, those who kicked him out. But here's this worthless group of people that Jephthah is a part of. And you're still wondering, how is that confusing, Danny? It sounds like they're just reporting the facts at this point. What would be confusing about that? What's confusing is the picture that the scriptures paint from Genesis to Revelation. What's the question that the scripture wants to answer? Who are the children of God? Who, in fact, are the legitimate children of God? The true sons and daughters of God. The answer given by the sons of Gilead is... Well, it depends on who your parents are. Who's your mom and who's your dad? And that's a good question. Who are your parents? You know, there's gonna be a day in which one does answer that question. Who are your parents? Jesus had to answer that. You remember in John chapter eight, he's talking to Jewish people. He's talking to Pharisees. What does Jesus say to them? The people say, Abraham is our father, and Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. He's talking about the devil there. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. You see that jab at the attack of the birth of Christ. We're not like you, Jesus. We came from a mom and a dad who is from Israel, not sexual immorality. They continue, we have one father, even God. Remember Jesus' response to them. If God were your father, if you were true sons of God, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. See that question? Who are the legitimate children of God? What is Jesus' answer? Those who love me. Do you love me? And in fact, if you're looking for another mark of a legitimate child, what does Hebrews 12 tell you? It's not just do you love Jesus. Does God the Father discipline you? Here are the marks of being a child of God. And so when you look at Jephthah, you look into his family tree, into his background, he's born into a family who didn't want him. 
He's born into a family who's eventually going to exile him. And you say, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? The one who is despised and rejected. Isaiah chapter 53. The one who, according to John chapter 1, came to earth. But his own did not receive him. And yet they rejected and exiled him. And later what? They killed him. These people have confused their history. They do not know who in fact are the true children of God. They don't know who the people of God are. You've got a history confused. But then you've got a history confronted. If you follow the story beginning in verse four, the war is kicking off. The Amorites, or excuse me, the Ammonites are fighting against Israel. They're still without a leader. They can't find one in their ranks and they don't know what to do. They don't know who to look for. Israel's struggling. And so what do they do? They're forced to confront their history. They're forced to consider what they have done in the past. They're forced to consider their illegitimate brother. The one in which they said, you're not one of us. Leave. They are now having to say, the rejected one, we need you back. It's a twist, isn't it? You know, sometimes I think if we're honest about things, we want to see God provide and we want to see God do something. But what we're really trying to say is we want to see God do it if it's in the way that I would think it would be done. We want it to be understandable to me and agreeable to me. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get at in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember what he says, consider your calling Not many of you, when you were called, were what? Wise. Not many powerful, not of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. You see, we we want an Othniel, but we get an Ehud. We want this picture of possibly a perfect judge when things seem to be going okay and what we get is this out of left field, weak salvation from Ehud. What is Israel being forced to do? They're having to look at the rejected one and now ask for redemption. Don't you see so clearly that that's you and me? The one that you and I have rejected It is he we all must come to for redemption. His name is Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at. And then they begin to ask the questions. You can see the story, don't you? Come here, Jephthah. We need you to to lead and fight for us. Come back and fight. And Jephthah replies, doesn't he? We need to deal with something first. You do remember the last time I was here, you hated me and you kicked me out and you want me back? You see what he's doing there? You're not going to manipulate me. You're not going to use me. I know what you're doing. I'm not going to be a part of that. I will not be used. And so the elders, they, they sweeten the deal a little bit. It's not just come back and fight 
Well, come back and fight and we'll let you lead. You can be the judge. You can be the ruler. You can be our commander and our judge. You can be our head. And so Jephthah wisely says, words are cheap. Let's make a covenant. Let's make sure this is in writing, as it were. God is our witness that if I fight for you and God wins, I will, in fact, be your judge. You can't help the irony here, can you? You know, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis calls this passage a parable lived out. It sounds an awful lot like what we just heard in Judges chapter 10. When Israel decided to go against God, worship these foreign idols, and then when problems hit, they call for God, and here we are, the same people rejecting the last man, saying, we don't want you, but now we need you. Come, please help us. It brings to mind what Jesus says to his disciples, doesn't it? A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's a powerful point for Christians. We shouldn't be so easily tricked into doing what the enemy wants and then be surprised when they turn on us because they've turned on the judge, that is the Lord himself. And so Jephthah says, before God is our witness, we're gonna make a covenant. And if you break it, the covenant curse will be upon you. You see all the ironies here. It sounds a lot like Joseph too, doesn't it? The brothers who sold him into slavery. And now they must submit to him. And here now these people who have sent him away now saying, yes, come back. We will in fact submit. They've confused their history and it's had to be confronted. And so what does Jephthah do when he's there? He corrects it. He corrects history for them. He agrees to the terms and he begins, you might say, I think it was Paul David Tripp, uh, I can't remember, but there's a book called War of Words and, and that's what Jephthah's doing here. There's, there's this war of words, you might say, that takes place. It's a correction of history. He, he sends messengers. He, he's looking for peace first. He's asking the king of the Ammonites, why are you fighting against us? Well, what is this oppression really about? Remember, they've been there for 18 years. And remember who he's writing to. It's the king of the Ammonites. It's like cousins of Israel. You know, Ammon, he is the descendant of Lot and the incestuous relationship with the younger daughter. This is who we're talking about. This is the group of people that are now fighting against Israel. Why are you fighting against us? Well, the king answers, because you're in my land. You can heal your children, can't you? That's mine. My toy, my thing, my room, my place. There's the king. You're in my land. You took our land. And instead of Jephthah saying, oh, okay. Well, here, you can have it back. He pushes back. He sends a messenger. And, and what's, what's essentially Jephthah saying? Your land. This is not your land. You need to know your history. You need to know your facts, as it were. And you can read about these facts. Numbers chapter 21, 
That's what Jephthah is outlining. He's recounting what happens. He's, he's telling him this is what's really taken place. Now, the question is, is this simply a, a historical error that Jephthah is trying to correct? And I think the answer is no. Because I think what's at stake here is Jephthah is saying this is a worldview issue. What do you think about history? Who's actually in charge of the world? Who do you trust in? Who sets nations above and removes them? Is history meaningless? I think this is the underlying point of what Jephthah is trying to get across. How you answer these questions determines how you understand this passage. If you're on the side of history is meaningless, you at its extreme believe in some kind of reincarnation, then you don't really care what has happened. What difference does it make? There's just a cycle, it's a pattern, and it'll come around, and as long as I do relatively good, then I can hope for good later. Maybe, perhaps even better, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's just history. Well, then there's the other extreme that might say history is ultimate. It's what defines everything. It's the who's your daddy kind of mentality. Or it's the, we need to go back to the good old days mentality. There was this glory period that should be reigning supreme for all history. That's what we need to be about. You get these extremes, but only the God of the Bible can tell you that time has a beginning and an end. And in it, I have worked my redemption for you. I control the minutes, the methods and every one in between, what takes place, it's my will, and it will, in fact, be done. You get the sense that Jephthah has a, somewhat of a view of the sovereignty of God, because his argument, weren't you encouraged where he started? He started at a redemptive moment, when God delivers his people out of Egypt, Israel didn't free themselves. They did nothing. It was their God who redeemed them. They go into the wilderness to the Red Sea and they came to Kadesh. And Jephthah says, go look at the books. We wanted to pass through Edom and Moab, but we sent letters. We asked for permission. And they said no. We said, okay. We went around and then we sent a, a message to Sihon. Can we go through? And Sihon gets mad about it. And he fights. He throws the first punch, as it were. And then don't you appreciate what Jephthah says? Sihon threw a punch, but it was the Lord who won the battle. God gave us this land. God gave us this land. He's the one who defeated the Amorites, not Ammonites. And so he just asks him, if history's not on your side, and it's not, what about, what about considering Balak? There's a precedence here. Balak wanted to get rid of us, but he wanted to do it I think it was Davis who says it kosher style. He wanted to do it with a blessing. He wanted a blessing from God and, and he couldn't do it. And so, well, he doesn't fight against Israel. Why, why would you not respond like Balak? 
who sure had the desire but didn't act on it? Or why for 300 years have you been silent on this? If this is such an issue, king, why has 300 years gone by and you have done nothing? You see, he's, he's putting this argument. He's packing a punch to say, do you see what's really going on, Mr. King? This is not an, an earthly history, but a theological history. That's the issue. Who do you trust in? Remember, it was God who gave us this land. God did that. This is not a physical possession, but it is a divine provision. It was our God who did this. What about your God, Chemosh? What has he given you? Can't you be content with that? Didn't he make some form of promise? Don't you give to him worship? What can he do for you? It's a worldview. Who controls history? And Jephthah is saying, it is the Lord. It is our God who both gave us this land and in fact controls history. As one pastor puts it, history is the playground of God's divine providence. That's, he's just playing it out for you. You get to see it. It's a, it's a playground. History shows you who the people of God are and who they aren't. The Lord of history, he goes as far as to say he's not just the Lord of history, he is, he is the judge, and that's where we're all headed. He calls him the judge. He says, God, judge this day on this issue, judge. And it's not just this issue where God is the judge. He's always the judge, and we're always headed towards judgment. And you can see if, if you're not a true child of God, you're doing everything you can to rewrite history. And stay as far away from that as possible. Because you cannot escape it. And Jephthah is saying he's the judge. And that is where we are all, in fact, headed. Time's not in your hands. It's not in my hands. It is in the Lord's. Because he rules over all. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe he rules over all? Or do you believe in Chemosh? The God with empty promises. Do you believe in the God of history? Or do you believe in science or nature? Do you believe in the God of history? Or some earthly power? Or some earthly pleasure? Some comfort? Some place? What do you trust in for salvation? What do you believe in? And you would think that is a really good apologetic you can't argue with what Jephthah has just said. And we should just assume this king would go, that is a very good statement. I agree. I'll back off. But what does he say? The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah. It doesn't mean, believer, just because you have the truth, you know the truth, and you proclaim the truth, the people are just going to listen. It doesn't mean that they're going to listen. Do you remember finishing up what Jesus says to those Pharisees? He goes as far as to say, they're not listening because they cannot bear 
the word. They cannot believe it. They cannot, in fact, understand it because they cannot bear to hear it. That's what reminds us of the nature of idolatry that leads to slavery. The world who lives in darkness cannot bear to hear the word of light, of life. And in fact, they are doing all they can to forsake him. And that's the decision that is put before us tonight. Do you believe in him? History is important. It's just not ultimate. It's determined by God, not simply because he is the author, although that is sufficient. He's not simply the author of history. He doesn't just write it. He's also the God who enters into it. What cataclysmic event takes place that we just celebrated that changes history forever? We literally move from a BC to an AD at one child's birth. That is the God of history. It's the God we worship. He doesn't just sit in heaven and write it. He has come in to redeem it and bring life a part of it. We must know our history. And I don't mean Smyrna Presbyterian Church history, although that's good. It's helpful. We need to know our redemptive history. You need to know how God created the world. And you need to know that Adam and Eve sinned. You need to know what God's promise of grace and salvation is there. And you need to know when Israel or the people, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt, that God brings them out. He brings them into the promised land. They don't do a good job in the promised land. You need to know about the united kingdom and the divided kingdom. You need to know about the prophets. You need to know about the apostles, the foundation by which we stand. You need to know about the early church. You need to know about the Reformation. You need to know about the Puritans. You need to know about our own church history, even here. And you could say, but I'm just not interested. Friends, did you know that almost every world heresy has come about by someone perpetuating something they failed to know in history? Almost every single Heresy and cult has come about because they failed to know their history. We must know our history. It anchors us. It's not meant to just say it was back then. It's what provides us assurance even this day. Salvation is surprising And it's not meant to just be a surprise because you received it. It's not meant to just be a surprise by who God saves because it's not just something that's historical. It is, in fact, grounded in history. It's not a platitude. We're not just trying to say, look at where you came from. It's an over and over saying, look at who you are. You are a citizen of glory. There's a a great cloud of witnesses. What do you do with this passage? It's two simple applications. One is you need to know the word. You must know your history, who God is and what he's done. And then I think secondly, it's an application that can happen over and over in this book. 
you and I must humble ourselves before God. That's what the people failed to do in chapter 10, and they were confronted with it. It's what the people failed to do in the very beginning of chapter 11, and then they were confronted with it. It is appropriate to cry out for a deliverer, but we want to know who it is that we're crying out for, because you don't need a Jephthah. You need Jesus, the same one who, similar to Jephthah, was despised and rejected. He was born into a questionable family. Jesus, too, had a group of misfits, didn't he? His own worthless men, as it might be said, of outcasts. But ultimately, what do we know about Jesus? He was the chief cornerstone by which the entire house of God is being built upon. Are you a true child of God? Do you love Jesus? I hope so. Let me pray to that end. God, we're so thankful that over and over you demonstrate in your word salvation is for failures. And as much as that might perhaps be catchy, I think more and more when we're honest with ourselves, we begin to see how wide and deep that really is because I am the failure. And how great and marvelous your grace that Unlikely people receive salvation and you choose unlikely people to tell of your salvation. Help us to know your word, to know our history, that we in fact might be proclaimers of it, telling our children and their children and that we might be those who are constant in our humility before you, the Lord, the judge, and the maker and sustainer of all things. In whose name we pray.